morning. Welcome to the worship of God with the people of God at Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're glad you're here whether you're with us uh, in person or in internet land. Uh, glad you can join us this morning. We are here today to worship the Lord our God, the Lord our God who created us I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, Jerusalem. We're here standing in the gates of the presence of the Lord this morning to worship. Uh, we have several announcements here this morning. Uh, first of all, there is a nursery today for the first time. Uh, it is for ages, uh, uh, for kids Three and under, is that right? Three and under. So if you haven't, uh, if you need to make use of that, uh, please do so just down the hall on your left. And there is, uh, if, when you, uh, we're dismissing this, this morning in the final hymn, that's going to be the time to pick up your kids from nursery. Uh, we also have relevant information for, oh, You've got the slides. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. So there's several announcements, other announcements here today as well. Uh, I'll commend those to you, Bible studies, community groups, what have you. Continue at some, uh, I'm sure, reduced summer schedule uh, for you'll, community groups kind of set their own pace here for the summer. Uh, Sunday school is still meeting by Zoom at 9 o'clock for uh, adult Sunday school and for uh, middle school, high school Sunday school, and that will be the case for the foreseeable future uh, as we go forward. Uh, today there is a picnic at Fox Ridge Park, 4 o'clock. 
church picnic. The church is providing uh, meat and buns and uh, condiments, uh, but the side dishes are for your own family only. So these are not uh, shareable. Don't you know? Don't bring a whole uh, pot of tomato of potato soup uh, or of, of potato salad. Uh, bring just enough for your own family today. But still, it'll be an uh, enjoyable time at Fox Ridge Park here in Leesburg. Uh, all right, so there's uh, other, uh, we're still, of course, observing all the various social distancing rules uh, this morning. So keep, your, uh, keep those in mind, keep your masks on, please unless you're up here talking, um, and then uh, we'll continue to observe that again for the, for the time being until there's another phase of the reopening uh, that can occur. And then as we leave this morning, uh, there's this exit plan that we've been following the last few weeks, and that'll all show up on the screen again to, uh, when we leave, and Frank Wong will uh, um, dismiss us by sections when we get ready to leave. All right, uh, I forgot to say, my name is Frank Pugh. I'm one of the elders here, and again, we're glad that you're worshiping with us today. All right, so let's call ourselves to worship with a responsive reading. Um, which again is ready for us on the screen behind me. All right. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The authorities exist what God has appointed, and those who exist will be incurred judgment for rulers and terror good conduct, but to bad. You have to fear of the one who is in authority. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And all them, taxes, taxes is owed, honor to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, owe no one anything except love each other, the one who loves one another fill the law. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you here this morning for your grace that has called us together, that has called us to worship. We pray that the things that are done and said here this morning would be glorifying to you, honoring to you, edifying to each other. We pray that you would be with uh, Frank Wong this morning as he uh, brings your word. May the Spirit of God, which inspired the scriptures, 
be present in his, um, in his sermon today. And may we indeed worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand again, please.
Good morning again. We'll uh, take our opportunity here now to turn our attention to prayer. We uh, have our uh, responsive prayer that will uh, be there in a moment. And uh, we look today from Tim Keller, uh, who will, has written much of this prayer, um, and we'll be praying through it together. So uh, we pray together, the congregation uh, pray, uh, prays through the bold, and I'll pray through the, uh, the not-so-bold. So let us pray. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers, but those delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. Sovereign God, we pray on behalf of your church throughout the world, and for this congregation, and for several of our sister PCA churches in Northern Virginia that we've been praying for from Sunday to Sunday. Inhabit and bless the worship services in person and online for us, for Alexandria PCA and Alexandria, for the Chinese Christian PCA and New City PCA in Falls Church. Lord of the Word, do not let us be seduced by the world, either naively going with the crowd or becoming hardened and cynic. Help us to meditate on your Word to the point of delight. Give us stability and contentment regardless of the circumstances. How we need that. Lord, Lord, if you patiently bore the pain of unanswered prayer for our sake, then we can be patient with what seems to be unanswered prayer for your sake. The cross proves that you love us, and so we can trust that you are listening to us and handling our request the way we would want if we had your wisdom. Lord of the world, people resent your claims on human lives. We, speak to, uh, we fear to speak of you for fear of ridicule and anger. But you are not intimidated by the world's powers, nor should we be. Help us to know the joy of obedience and the fearlessness that goes with it. O oh God, of, of all our spoken and unspoken requests, we present you in the name of Jesus, your, your Son, our Savior. Amen. So let us take a minute to confess our own sins, and then we'll join together in a moment as we confess corporately. Let's pray. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we fall short of your glory every day, spending hours unprofitably by thinking things that do are good when they are not done for your purposes, nor spring from the wisdom of your word. 
We forget to submit to your will and fail to be quiet there. We have been hastily and short in prayer. Father, in your mercy, forgive our sins. Enable us to be holy people, free from every wrong desire and free thing contrary to your mind. Grant us more and more the resurrection of life. May it rule in us. May we walk in its power and be strengthened through its influence. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us be encouraged. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Amen. All right. So typically, we're going to have another song. Typically, this is when we uh, would um, uh, have our offering. So I remind, remind you that there are offering boxes to put the offering in as you leave this morning. great to see all of you guys again um, in person. Um, I pray that this week has been good um, and that this weekend has been joyous as well. A happy 4th of July weekend to all of you. Again, don't forget about the picnic. Uh, hopefully we'll see you there. Please do only bring food for your family. We don't want to have you, have you go home with like a huge pile of potato salad, right? So uh, also please do exercise wisdom as you are there um, with social distancing and masks and all of that. But this morning, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And a quick bit of context, because we did take some time off uh, from our series to spend two weeks thinking about worship as we sort of came back together um, in person uh, for worship services. Well, we're in chapter 12 uh, now of Mark, and that means we're solidly in the Passion Week of Christ. Uh, you might have missed that. Uh, be, that sort of transition into the Passion Week because we did the triumphal entry on uh, Palm Sunday way back in, in April, which was chapter 11. So we sort of skipped over that straight into chapter 12. Now, uh, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 27, our passage this morning is widely thought to have occurred on uh, Tuesday of the Passion Week. It's commonly called uh, the day of questions, because of the series of questions that were posed to Jesus. And we have two of them in our passage this morning. And hopefully we'll uh, be able to see how the Lord addresses our need of his word and his power uh, in this passage. So let's read Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 27. 
And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful then to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, they said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Julius Caesar's, or Caesar Augustus, actually. Uh, Caesar, uh, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's and God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him uh, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died and left no offspring, the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage this morning. We thank you for the privilege and the blessing it is to gather, uh, to hear your word preached, and to worship uh, you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us our uh, great need of your word and of your power and how we fail to see it so very often. Lord, I pray that you would then draw us near to yourself in the gospel, that we would see how you have provided us both your word and your power in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, be with us as we look at your word. Would it be powerful to change us and change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to start by telling you about a time that I was confronted with the uncomfortable reality that I thought I knew more than I actually did. (laughs) No happens quite often, actually, right? So I was a first-year seminary student uh, at RTSDC, and I was taking Systematic Theology 3 with the late Dr. Howard Griffith. And there came a point in the class where Dr. Griffith had uh, sort of laid out a theological doctrine, and I had a question because I didn't agree with it. And so I sort of strung together what I thought was a coherent argument that sort of disproved his point, and and, uh, I remember him just sort of smiling as I delivered my monologue, right? And remember, I'm a punk kid of about 23 at this point uh, with no theological training in my first seminary class. And so you just sort of, you can see where this is going, right? You can see how this is going to turn out for me. And um, when I was sort of done laying out my treatise uh, of theology, uh, Dr. Griffith sort of deadpan to the class, and that's how you become a heretic. And I was like, ooh, okay. 
And now, Dr. Griffith was very gracious um, as he sort of pointed out all the ways that I was wrong and reminded me that if I had just sort of taken the systematic theology classes in order, remember this is systematic three, I hadn't taken th uh, one or two, he had said, if I had just taken systematic one or two, he I wouldn't have had these errors or uh, sort of become a heretic, so to speak. And it really boiled down to this, right? That I thought I knew the scriptures and the power of God pretty well, right? I thought I knew what I was talking about, but I clearly didn't, and it led me into heresy. Now, thankfully, I made that error in class uh, where I had a professor that loved me and cared for me and uh, could uh, kindly sort of correct me um, in my error, of course, with a touch of humor. Uh, but what we see is that in this passage this morning, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees didn't make that mistake, right? In a sort of semi-private area of, of seminary. Rather, they make their mistake in the temple for all of Jerusalem to see. And they thought that they knew what they were talking about, but Jesus made it clear to them that they had made grievous errors. And so the supposed sort of scholars and experts of the law and, and the Torah were exposed by Jesus's answers. And so it was, as Jesus said in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And that's just like really harsh, right? <laughs> like you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And those charges against the Sadducees are going to be the sort of structure of our time this morning. And the two charges that, one, they neither know the scriptures, nor two, the power of God, really sort of sum up what's going on with not only the Sadducees, but also the Pharisees and the Herodians. And of course, we can further note that they don't get it in those two categories, both generally and specifically. And so then after we're working through both of those charges, we'll see how we fail, and then how the gospel addresses both of those issues. So let's start with the charge that they don't know the scriptures. And this is why we started with my embarrassing story, right? Because all three groups, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, were supposed to be the experts in the law and the scriptures. And yet, they fail spectacularly, right? In both uh, the specific sense and a general sense. So let's start with how they don't know the scriptures specifically. First, we need, to see, we need to know some things about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a sort of sect of the religious elite that, were, that sort of held some really interesting theological views. They rejected the supernatural, especially the resurrection. And so they taught that death didn't lead to sort of an afterlife, but that it led to annihilation, where you just sort of simply cease to exist. And they also held that uh, only the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, are uh, authoritative. And so if it wasn't in the Torah, it didn't really count. And so obviously, because they only thought the Torah mattered, they were experts of the, Lord, uh, of the Torah. Okay, so that's the background on, on the Sadducees. Now, when we encountered the Sadducees here, their question isn't really much of a question, actually. It's really a logical argument to argue from the absurd. They're trying to show how ridiculous the idea of a resurrection is by asking which of these seven men would be the husband according to the law of leveret marriage, which we find in Deuteronomy 25, uh, and which we also know well from the book of Ruth and, of course, from their story. 
And their reasoning sort of goes something like this. We know the law of leveret marriage is true and a thing because it's in the Torah. Uh, and the resurrection, which it isn't explicitly a thing, uh, in the, it isn't really sort of explicitly found in the Torah. And if there is a resurrection, then you would end up with some really big issues like this one, like who's going to be the husband. And so therefore, the resurrection can't possibly be a thing. So the, the Sadducees likely had sort of some, sex, uh, some success with this particular argument. So they decided to try it out on Jesus. And of course, it works as well, about as well as my argument did with Dr. Griffith, you know, ending in complete disaster. And so Jesus exposes them in verse 26. There he quotes uh, God saying that I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he's quoting uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And he could have pulled from any number of passages, uh, but he chose this one. And that's important because Exodus 3, verse 6, is solidly in the middle of the Torah, right? Which is solidly in the middle of the Sadducees' supposed expertise. And so Jesus is, is essentially saying, look, guys, all you have to do is look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and there's the resurrection. I think it's pretty clear. All you have to do is take into account that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already dead at this point in Exodus. And so how can God be the God of someone that doesn't exist anymore like you say they are, right? And so he can't. So the wording suggests and teaches us that they are still alive with God, hence the need for a resurrection. I mean, guys, I thought you were supposed to know this. Whoops, <laughs> right? Whoops. And so Jesus exposed the sad exposed that the Sadduc uh, exposed the fact that the Sadducees didn't actually know how to understand specific scriptures that relate to the resurrection. But what about the Pharisees and the Herodians, right? We sort of skipped them. How do they not know the scriptures? And they don't know them, generally speaking. As with the Sadducees, some sort of understanding of who these groups are uh, is helpful. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees. These would have been the sort of political conservatives of the day. They resisted Rome, had a narrow, purist view of Judaism, and they were basically the law followers, right? And then the Herodians were the complete opposite. They would have been the liberals. They were sellouts and collaborators with the Roman oppressors and syncretistic in their convictions. And these two groups wouldn't have been caught dead with each other. And yet, what do we find? We see them here together, united in their desire to destroy Jesus. And so this motivation to, to destroy Jesus is further highlighted by the fact that they were sent, right? The first verse of our passage says that they were sent. But who were they sent by? It's clear that they're sent by the Sanhedrin. And these were the people that Jesus had sort of spoken against uh, in our passage from last week. And so their intention as they come wasn't to honestly ask, honestly ask Jesus a question, but really to trap him, right, as the, as the, the verse say, says. And the word for trap here that's used in verse 13 is really meant to sort of talk about, uh, to convey a meaning of to catch by hunting. And so they weren't just sort of coming up to ask him a question. They were hunting Jesus. Okay, so they weren't, what were they really concerned about? They weren't concerned about what was righteous in the eyes of God. They weren't concerned about God at all, in fact. Rather, they're concerned with hunting down and killing a threat to their power, influence, and status. 
And so then we can also see that there's sort of selfish and earthbound perspective in the sort of question itself. To the Pharisees and the Herodians, this question that they ask Jesus is sort of the perfect question because it's a no-win question, right? If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, the common folk who deeply resented the taxes would uh, be upset with him and then desert him. This would render him harmless because he wouldn't have any influence or popularity. And then, but if he says the opposite, that he says that the taxes shouldn't be paid, what happens? He gets painted as an insurrectionist and an enemy of the Romans. And so what happens? The Romans do the dirty work for the Sanhedrin, right? And get rid of him. And so the, the, the Herodians and the Pharisees and really the Sanhedrin think that they've got Jesus boxed in. But when we take all of these things together, sort of all the motivations, all of like the, the fact that they're giving up their sort of convictions to work together, what do we see? We see that they aren't standing for principles. They aren't standing for what is righteous and what is uh, good, but rather they're standing for pragmatism. They don't care at all what is right or godly, but what will work to achieve what they want. Everything is about them and what they want. They are willing to compromise everything to achieve what they want, right? And so do you see how this is all about them and not about righteousness? And this is how they fail to know the scriptures in a general sense. Because the whole sweep of the Bible sort of is meant to communicate that life isn't about us, but rather it's about God, right? Man was created to, wasn't created to serve himself, but to serve God in God's own image. That sort of chief end of man thing, right? Um, and so when the Pharisees and Herodians come on behalf of the Sanhedrin for the purpose of hunting Jesus, they demonstrate that they've missed the sort of overall sweep and general point of the scriptures. And that's what Jesus points out. And so while Jesus certainly affirmed the validity of the Roman state and the call to, the call to uh, render unto God what is God's is the far more important correction, right? You see, the, the coin that Jesus uses as a prop bore the image of Caesar. It was understood back then that the coins belonged to the one whose image they bore, and they were given for a purpose. And they were given specifically to pay for the services gained from Roman rule. And so in the same way, how much more are we to owe God for what we gain from his rule over all things, especially since we bear his image, right? And so the answer is that we owe nothing less than our whole selves, right? We can't be about ourselves because everything that we are is owned by God. Everything that we are is demanded by God in service to him. And so our chief end, right, isn't to glorify ourselves and to enjoy ourselves, but to glorify God and to enjoy him. And so we see the Sadducees don't know this um, sort of scripture specifically, and the Pharisees and the Herodians don't know sort of the general thrust of the scriptures. But what about the power of God, right? Because there's two charges. What about the power of God? They don't get that specifically and generally as well. So let's start with the specifics and the Sadducees again. This one's pretty straightforward, right? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that God could overcome death. That's pretty much the definition of not believing in the power of God. I mean, it seems to be a ridiculous position on so many different levels, right? I mean, come on. God is God, right? If God created life from nothing, then surely he can conquer death. But at its core, 
it's not just a denial of God's power. It's really a denial of God's faithfulness as well. And why do I say that? Why do I say that it's a denial of God's faithfulness? You see, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that would have been indisputable, right, to all the people. And if there was one thing that the people could hang their hats on is that God was faithful. And so what was the nature of the sort of covenant that was made? It was, it was made for the protection, deliverance, and blessing of God's chosen people. And so these were God's chosen people whom he loved and would deliver and protect. But what good is his protection? What good is his deliverance? What good is his blessing if he fails, if God fails to deliver them from that final and ultimate curse that is death? What good is it if God, if uh, death would sort of have the absolute and definitive shackle upon sort of their hopes? What good is it? They would sort of be good for now, but then they end in nothing. So when it comes down to it, God cannot be faithful to his covenant if he leaves his people in death and in nothingness. And so right there we see that the Sadducees are just wrong, right? That they don't understand God's power and what he can do. And of course, God is faithful, that he is not unfaithful. And so he must bring about a, a resurrection. But what about the Pharisees and the Herodians? They seem to be on board with this idea of a resurrection through the power of God. But again, they really don't know the power of God in a general sense. And what I mean by that is they don't live as if they personally know the power of God. My friends, if we had sort of experienced the power of God, we would cry out as Paul does in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? It's that boldness, that fearlessness that we, we prayed about in our sort of responsive prayer, right? But the Pharisees and the Herodians consistently show that they don't live securely in light of God's great power. While they might sort of know of God's power intellectually, they certainly don't trust in it. They certainly don't trust God to take care of them when Jesus bursts onto the scene, threatening their sort of influence and power and uh, status. Rather than seeking to serve God by listening to and accepting Jesus, they, how do they react? They react in fear, jealousy, and anger. And why is that? It's because they don't trust that the Lord is going to provide for them. And so they don't trust that he's going to look out for them. And so what do they have to do? They have to look out for number one. And you would think that, like, this, that they would get it, right? Because this sort of ties into their knowing of Scripture, which they were supposed to sort of know Scripture since they're the Pharisees, right? They should have understood that, like, the Roman rule over them was an extension of that exile that they'd been living in for so long. Right? A good and right discipline from the Lord. They ought to be sort of seeking the welfare of the city where the Lord had sent them into exile as Jeremiah 29.7 directs them to do. Right? And even when they've been restored to the land, they're still spiritually in exile, estranged from the word of God and from the power of God. And so for hundreds of years, the Lord seemed to be silent and distant. But really, the Pharisees and the Herodians ought to have understood their situation. They ought to have trusted that the Lord would be faithful to his promises even when they don't hear from him, 
right? Even while they live in exile, because that exile in of itself is a discipline, a showing that God is with them. But they didn't, right? They didn't trust that the Lord was going to deliver them from the Romans. They didn't trust that the Lord was going to deliver them from sort of a loss in income because Jesus had burst onto the scene. No. Who do they really trust in? They trust in themselves. And so we've worked our way through sort of their utter failure, right? An error in the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. They thought that they knew what they were talking about, but they neither knew the scriptures nor did they know or trust in the power of God. And we spend a lot of time talking about them. So let's talk about us, right? Because it's really easy to sort of pile on to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians because they're clearly the villains of the story. But where do we come in? We generally don't come in on the side of Jesus. We generally come in on the side of sinners, right? And so how do we see our failures in this? How does this connect to us? You know, most of our problems with sin can be traced back to these two charges. We don't know the scriptures and we don't know the power of God. How many of us are like the Pharisees and the Herodians who are caught up in their own agendas, sort of not understanding the general point of the scriptures pointing us to God? Do you catch yourselves being selfish in, what you're, in, in that you're always thinking about yourself? about your to-do list, about your wants, about your rights and your freedoms and your privileges? Or, or to put it positively, are we consistently considering how we are to glorify God and to enjoy Him? Or are we sort of self-focused? And, you know, I'll confess, I'm self-centered. I'm prideful. I think about myself and I don't think about God. And then what about the times when we forget, just sort of forget, the specific passages that tell us to do something or not do something. We know what the scriptures say, but do we really know it with our whole being? Do we really think about it? And what about the power of God? When I sin because I want to, when I know what the scriptures say and I don't care, and I still do it anyways, when I do that, I'm simply denying the power of God in my life. I'm essentially saying that sin and the eternal judgment of hell that flows from God's wrath for sin simply isn't an issue. I'm saying that God doesn't have real and true power to bring me to justice and to judge me for my sin. That's what I'm saying when I, when I sin willfully and wantonly. And what about our anxieties and our cares and our worries? How many times do we act out of fear of man instead of the fear of God? Those are when you boil them down to their core, failures to live in light of the power of God for us. And there's probably a bit of both issues, not knowing the scriptures and not knowing the power of God and everything that we struggle with. We simply lack faith and understanding. And so what's the upshot of it? It's, it's that I don't stand with Jesus. Rather, I stand among the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, confident in my ignorance and my sin. I'm placing my faith in myself and the, in, in the wisdom of this world. And well, how far does it take us, right? Not very far. The wisdom of the world doesn't go very far. Sure, I can render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but it will be done grudgingly and with, with bitterness. And my sin nature 
doesn't mean that I don't want to render to the Lord anything, much less my whole self. And so there's really, we're sort of up a creek without a paddle, right? We've got an issue. And so we need to go searching for the gospel, right? Because we've got big problems and no answers. And not surprisingly, the gospel is looking us square in the face, right? Because who's the answer? Sunday school answer is Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. And I can guess, and I hope you can guess where I'm going with this. Because we, we have two problems, right? Not knowing the scriptures and not knowing uh, the power of God. And God's answer to both problems is his son. And that's the gospel, right? So in the gospel, what happens? I tell my students that the gospel has at least three parts. First, the, the cross. Jesus died to take all of our sins, all of our shame, all of our errors, and all of the punishment that goes with it. And then he took it all to the grave and buried it. And then two comes the resurrection. He rose again in newness of life, full of that resurrection power that the Sadducees deny, right? Full of the power of God, full of resurrection life. But all of that still leaves me with my problem until what? Until three. I'm united with God. I'm united with Christ. And this is God's plan to deal with our problems. In Christ, I now know the scriptures because I know Christ, because I'm united with him. John, well, John 1 tells us that Jesus is the incarnate word of God. And so when I get Jesus, I get the word of God. That means that the word is no longer out there for me to master, right? Not just a book that I have to read and know inside and out, but now the word is inside of me mastering me. And as the writer of, the, of Hebrews tells us, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the word is written on my very heart. And so that's how it works in a general sense. Now, what about the specific sense? Well, the Holy Spirit helps us to recall the word of God that we have learned and internalized as we deal with temptations, right? So ever had a verse sort of pop into your head right when temptation is at your doorstep? Yeah, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the word of God working in your life to keep you from sin. That's the, word, the Holy Spirit at work to bring us to the knowledge of the word right then in that specific moment. And what about knowing the power of God? Well, what is the power of God? Of course, Jesus is. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 to 24 says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And remember how I said that we are sort of trusting in the wisdom of this world, leaning upon the learning and so-called experts like the Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees, and upon ourselves, right? We think of ourselves as experts. Well, God has used the counterintuitive nature of the cross to expose our self-righteousness and our self-confidence. Why do I need a crucified Savior? Because through the cross, I see not only uh, I see just what is being overcome, and not just sort of eternal death and judgment, but also my self-centeredness, my pride and my self-confidence. The gospel moves me from a place of death and self-centeredness to a place of life and Jesus-centeredness. It says that you can't do it yourself. Jesus needs to do it for you. 
And so that move of moving me from self-centeredness to Jesus-centeredness, that move demonstrates the power of the gospel. Ephesians 2 tells us about the transformation that has happened in my life. I was once a child of wrath, dead in the trespasses and sins in which I once walked. But God, in his power and his grace, made me alive together with Christ. And so what happens? I'm changed. I'm transformed. I, I was buried with him in death, and I am raised with him in resurrection life. And so, now what am I? I'm not just alive, but I'm a li living, breathing testimony to the resurrection power of God that has made what was once dead, now alive in Christ. And we see that power working out specifically as well. We see it again in the fruit of sanctification. We see the power, the resurrection power of God when we desire him more and more and desire sinful things less and less. Hopefully you've noticed this power in your life to make things, sinful things less and less appealing and the righteous things more and more delightful. That's the power of God at work in your life. And so as we wrap up our time this morning in God's word, what does this passage call us to do? How does being full of the word of God and his resurrection power change how we live? And I think that it calls us to some commonplace things. It calls us to pursue the scriptures and the power of God for salvation, to just simply pursue them. It calls us to pursue those sort of pesky spiritual disciplines that none of us are particularly good at, right? That aren't particularly flashy or groundbreaking. Read your Bible. Spend time with uh, the living word that is also living within you right? Pray. Evangelize to your neighbors. Uh, want to see the power of God at work for salvation? You got to go talk to Jesus for, uh, to, you got to go talk about Jesus with some non-believers, okay? Fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging them on to good works. When you do that, when you engage in spiritual disciplines, you'll notice that those things have a cumulative impact on your life. And so we are called to wholeheartedly and unreservedly render to God what is his, which is everything that we are. We're called to dive into his, into his word, to feast upon it, to learn it, to get to know it. And by doing so, we come to know the one by whose power and grace we are saved. And so let's see Jesus that we might know the word and the power of God, which is really the root of all of our issues. Right? And that we might see that Jesus abounds over all things. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we, we don't know you very well. We don't know your scriptures. We don't believe in your power. For Lord, we are self-centered, wrapped up in everything about this world. We don't believe in you. We don't trust in you, which is why we chase after so many things in our own strength. We're just like the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees in our ignorance and in our need of you. But Lord, praise be to God, to you, to your son, Jesus, for having mercy upon us, for setting us straight, 
like you did the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians, that you call us to uh, yourself, that we might be filled with you, with the word of God, with the power of God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, um, to do all of those commonplace things, all those spiritual disciplines that we neglect. Lord, I pray that you would call us to chase after you, that we might see you uh, abound more and more in our lives and that we might know you and be more like you as well. So Lord, we pray these things in your holy and matchless name. Amen.
Hear now the benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. As you'll see on uh, the graphic behind me, we'll be dismissing by sections. Uh, so would sections 1 and 1A, you are dismissed. 